I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. Following teaching is part one in the series, Practicing the Way, Scripture. What is the Bible? What is it for? How do we read it? Is this strange ancient library anchored in its alien time and place, or can it transcend time and culture? To Jesus of Nazareth, the scriptures are trustworthy and good, life-giving and authoritative. As his students, can the Bible be those things for us as well? In what I would describe as a novelist Michael Faber's masterwork of literary fiction, an English pastor says goodbye to his small congregation and to his wife as he embarks on a missionary journey abroad. He's sent by a private American corporation to preach to the native population of a distant planet called Oasis. And upon arrival, this pastor discovers that the native population is actually eager to learn the things of Jesus. And though they cannot read it themselves, they are desperate to hear from the Bible. Read for us, they beg, the book of strange new things. Though the book's setting obviously overlaps with science fiction, it's an idea pulled from the experience of men and women who travel to parts of the world where the Bible is scarce or dangerous. Take, for example, this clip of Chinese Christians receiving their own personal copies of the Bible for the very first time. This enthusiasm for the Bible is not shared the world over. Bibles are also overlooked or piled high in goodwill donation bins. Bibles are scorned or burned, even desecrated. Entire books, lectures, podcasts, careers have been dedicated to discrediting and debunking the Bible. The Bible has been cited as the motivation and justification for racism, sexism, violence, slavery, oppression, war. And it's not exactly a mystery why the Bible has such a bizarre polarizing effect on the world. Much of what's inside is, I think, overtly beautiful and inspiring. It has undeniably shaped entire cultures for the better in certain moments in history. People who don't even realize they're doing it quote Jesus of Nazareth from the Bible. But there's also intense language and violence and explicit sex poems, adultery, betrayal, deception, incest, nihilism, orgies, dismemberment, rape, genocide, war, murder. Some of it is literal. Some of it's kind of figurative. Some of it is redemptive. It serves a purpose in the story. Some of it, frankly, is somber and bleak. And some of that crazy stuff is in there to teach us something. Some of it just claims to record history. And some of it continues to defy easy explanation thousands of years later. And it's not like this is an obscure volume. The Guinness Book of World Records argues that although it is impossible to obtain exact figures, there is little doubt that the Bible is the world's best-selling and most widely distributed book. 
Weird, huh? To be sure, people have had questions about the Bible as long as there's been a Bible to confuse them. That's nothing new. But when I was first getting into the game, the fact that if you want Jesus, the Bible comes with him, that was sort of a given. Then over the last decade or so, I've seen an increasing number of disciples of Jesus desperate to somehow jettison the Bible while holding on to Jesus, which is funny because even after you've dispensed with the entire Old Testament, you still have some of the Bible's most intense content in those four biographies of Jesus. You get judgment, hell, the devil, church excommunication, sex ethics, money, nonviolence, state sedition. It's all there in the teachings of Jesus. And at any rate, the effort to somehow pry the greater library of writings we call the scriptures away from the biographies of Jesus or what we call the gospels, it never works because Jesus himself is constantly appealing to the rest of the Bible as authoritative and indispensable. In fact, Jesus goes as far as to argue that the Bible is what lends his life and his work credibility. So it makes perfect sense that in the vast majority of cases, the struggle of frustrated Christians, usually those raised in conservative or fundamentalist environments, their struggle to diminish the Bible always results in the eventual diminishing of Jesus himself, and eventually the way of Jesus is deconstructed and then altogether abandoned. Now, if you've heard me teach more than a couple of times, you may have noticed the whole deconstructionist fad is of great interest to me. I've been working on a book about it for a bit now. I think one of the reasons I feel so strongly about the deconstructionist fad is because I was, of all people, someone most likely to buy into it. I was raised in a fundamentalist, conservative, Southern Baptist environment. Uh, During the satanic moral panic of the 80s, I hate groupthink. I hate prescribed ways of thinking and behaving. I am wired to a tremendous fault to experience a visceral reaction to being told what to think or what to do. I refuse to watch a single episode of Tiger King. Too trendy. It's why punk rock so appealed to me as a young man. It's why I eventually got frustrated with punk rock culture for having too many internal rules. It had a dress code and a prescribed attitude. Somewhere in my soul is a deep-seated fire of defiance. And early on in my spiritual formation, I learned that this was both my Achilles heel and it was a gift from God for the sake of the kingdom. And after years of spiritual formation and years of therapy, I'm starting to get a grip. But I still refuse to watch Tiger King. My point is, I should be on the deconstructionist bandwagon. I have never felt any burden to keep up this Jesus thing to please or comfort friends or family because, and again, to a fault, I often don't care much what other people think or worry about upsetting them. I'm not in this for job security or stability. I have other things I could be doing. I I don't hang on because I'm scared of letting go or scared of what that could mean for my life. I'm actually drawn to exploring and even obsessing over tragedy and suffering. And I should have bailed out but I haven't, and I won't, ever. And in all that, that's not all. I actually love the Bible. I've dedicated much of my life to studying and teaching the Bible. I find it fascinating and beautiful and ugly and complicated and freeing and also frustrating. It's sophisticated. It's confusing. It is everything I love in a work of art and much, much more. The Bible is easily the world's most beloved and loathed 
book, the world's most divisive and incendiary work of art, literature, history, and theology. And it is, most importantly, the work from which we learn the way of Jesus. Get that. Though we know a a bit about Jesus from several historical sources, the Bible contains his only biographies, the only record of his teaching and way of life to which his followers then and now have been called, which is why there is no apprenticeship to Jesus that does not hold the Bible as central to discipleship and not just as central, but as scripture, more than just a work of literature, not simply an interesting historical artifact with nuggets of flawed wisdom, but as scripture. In his book about the Bible, Andrew Wilson writes, ultimately, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ, the man who is God, the king of the world, the crucified, risen, and exalted rescuer. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him, and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too, even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. Today, we begin another thing that we've never done. We're starting a new series of teachings and set of practices in our communities during this ongoing pandemic season of social distancing. And again, like all of online church, this is not the way we'd like to do things, but we believe this is really important stuff. I've actually noticed uh, as a pastor and all how important all this stuff is at the moment. That is the stuff we're always on about, spiritual disciplines and prayer, practicing the presence of God, the Bible. We've been rounding people up around this book for years now, and that isn't a brag. I guess it's kind of a brag, but Nary has a single Sunday gathering come and gone without us studying the scriptures. Most of those Sundays, studying it in detail, one line, one word at a time. Go us. (laughs) So much so that once a story got back to me, I should mention here that anytime someone says something derogatory about me or the church leadership, it somehow always makes it back to me. I wish it didn't. Stop telling me about it. At any rate, we were in a series and set of practices, and I did a, a kind of teaching that we in the preaching game call topical. So it was less about unpacking a particular text, one word and one line at a time, which we call an exegetical teaching, and it was more about a, a particular concept. Nonetheless, it's Van City, so I used the Bible to get there. I taught through a passage in Matthew, unpacked it a bit, appealed to several more passages throughout the New Testament. It was a whole thing. The first 15 minutes or so of the teaching, more than a third of the entire thing. Later that week, a complaint made it back to me that the sermon was no good because there was hardly any Bible in it. Part of me was discouraged. I was like, man, for the love, we, we can't win for losing. But another part of me was encouraged. I was like, man, these... Jokers can't get enough of the Bible. Uh, We've made quite the big deal out of this thing, this book, decidedly and unapologetically. But it escapes the notice of no one that our relationship with the Bible is complicated. And if we're going to begin a new conversation about the Bible and our relationship with it, I don't want to do the whole explain away the Bible's weirdness approach. Like, what's up with this or that weird, embarrassing thing in the Bible? There's a mountain of books on those subjects. It would take forever. And more importantly, that is sort of us putting the Bible on trial. 
a time and a place for that conversation, but I don't think this is it. And honestly, the Bible's weirdness isn't always meant to be resolved, frankly. Understanding that is part of what it means to understand the book. I could just tell you guys to read and learn the dang thing, but I think we all know a person or many people who know an awful lot about the Bible, but they aren't much like Jesus at all. So instead of defending or prescribing the Bible, let's start the whole conversation somewhere else. Let's start with Jesus of Nazareth. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. While you're getting there, I'm going to give you guys a bit of recommended reading for the series for the weeks ahead. First, uh, Unbreakable is a book by Andrew Wilson. Really short, readable little book. You can finish it in one sitting. One of the best books out there on the Bible, even though it's some 60 pages or so. There's Shaped by the Word by Robert Mulholland, which I'll quote in a bit, another great book. And finally, uh, Read for the Bible for a Change by Ray Lubeck is a more a technique hermeneutics on how to read the Bible. But maybe the best resource that I can recommend, believe it or not, is not a book, but a podcast. Our friends at The Bible Project have a podcast series from 2017 called How to Read the Bible. There's a link in the video description and on this teaching series page at vancity.church. It's an entertaining, down-to-earth, incredibly intelligent, scholarly, nuanced journey through what the Bible is and is not, how to read it well. I can't recommend it enough. It's amazing, amazing stuff. All right, that said, let's get into what else? The Bible for a bit. This is from Jesus' collection of essential teachings, what we think of as his manifesto for life in the kingdom of God. You guys ready in the studio? There, that's the spirit. It has to get bigger every week. The longer we're in quarantine, the bigger the woos. Let's read from Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, of course, the Bible as we understand it was yet to exist when Jesus said this. Jesus' Bible was what we call the Old Testament, uh, what first century Jews often refer to as the scriptures or sometimes as the law and the prophets. In Hebrew, that word law is Torah, or another way of translating that word would be teaching. Uh, this was the name for the first five books of our Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now next came the prophets, which consisted of both historical writings, Joshua and Judges, as well as the traditional prophetic writings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so on. A third category called the writings isn't mentioned here. But Jesus quotes and references them elsewhere, the Psalms, Proverbs, and the rest. The point is, when Jesus says the law and the prophets, he means the Bible as he and his audience understood it. And of these writings, he says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now that word abolish is katelu in Greek. Matthew uses the same word elsewhere to describe the destruction and dismantling of a building or an institution. It was a technical term that in this context referred to disobeying and disrespecting the Bible, but 
More than that also, I read this week someone who argued that we would use the word deconstruct. So Jesus is saying, don't think that I have come to deconstruct the Bible. Now, why would Jesus feel the need to clarify that he had not come to disobey or dismantle or deconstruct the Bible? Wouldn't a Jewish rabbi be expected to do the exact opposite of all those things? Jesus feels the need to clarify because his teaching and ministry was so provocative, so radical and unique that some had begun to speculate that Jesus was going to do away with the Bible or that he himself disrespected it. And Jesus begins this collection of teachings by saying, listen, I am absolutely not throwing out the scriptures. I have come to fulfill them. And this word actually would come as a bit of a surprise. After all, if Jesus is defending himself against suspected disobedience of the scriptures, wouldn't he counter with something more like, I've not come to disobey them, but to obey them? What in the world does the word fulfill mean? In Greek, uh, the word that Matthew uses is actually uh, used quite a bit to describe the way that Old Testament prophecies came to fruition in Jesus. It's all leading to Jesus. And Jesus goes on to say, Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That's actually the first time, the first documentation of Jesus' famous preface, Very truly I tell you. This phrase and uh, all of its translation variants will appear a further 30 times in Matthew's biography, 13 in Mark, 6 in Luke, 25 times in John. This little phrase is widely recognized by scholars as an authentic and distinct, distinctive feature of Jesus' teaching style. And that phrase, all that to say, that phrase is meant to emphasize what follows. In particular, statements which Jesus' audience may have found surprising or even divisive, offensive, or uncomfortable. So he goes on to say, Very truly I tell you, listen up, until heaven and earth disappear which is kind of like a hyperbolic idiom, not unlike our uh, current phrases, when hell freezes over or when pigs fly, the point being never. The scriptures will never pass away. And he describes the importance of every detail by using terms that translators ren render a number of different ways. There's not, not an iota, not a dot will pass away or not one dot of an I or not one cross of a T, not even the slightest little detail, not even the hook of a letter will disappear. None of it will pass away, Jesus says, until everything is accomplished. And once again, his audience would have thought, wait, what? So he says, therefore, meaning what I'm getting at is that anyone who sets aside one of these commands, that phrase sets aside, sets aside could be translated relaxes one of these commands or loosens one of these commands. And by these commands, does Jesus mean the ones prior to the teaching he's about to give? Or does he mean everything that comes after what he's saying at the moment, the Sermon on the Mount? The scholarly consensus is that Jesus is referring to the commands he's about to give, but those commands are Jesus' reading of the Bible. And many of Jesus' interpretations called into question other popular interpretations of his day, which is why the teaching format goes, you have heard it said, then a quote from the Law and the Prophets. Then Jesus offers a teaching on the passage in question, his exegesis of the Bible. And in his teaching, Jesus is doing much more than offering his apprentices a right way of thinking about the Bible. He's calling them into an active way of life. But what's particularly interesting about Jesus' unpacking of the scriptures for us at the moment anyway 
is that his take on the Bible calls into question other popular ways of reading the text, both in his day and in ours. Really, for people reading the Bible at all, their reaction typically falls in one of two categories. You have the right and the left. On the left, you have the theologically liberal or the progressives, if you like, which celebrates the Bible as a work of literature, but not as authoritative scripture. For them, the Bible is indeed a library of writings, but a very human one and little more than that. Maybe these human authors had some kind of experience with the divine, whatever that means, and maybe they wrote about it after that happened. But God himself had little, if anything, to do with the actual writing of the book. Now, the other camp is way over on the right of the spectrum, but way over on the other pole on the right is something that is often called biblicism or the idolatry of the Bible. And in this view, the Bible is understood completely as authoritative scripture with absolutely no regard whatsoever for the Bible as also literature. And consequently, the Bible becomes something like a a Mormon artifact that fell from heaven on golden tablets. And this view of the Bible as itself a divine thing eliminates the human side of things. The Bible was drafted by human authors. And though the church has always held that those authors were inspired by the Spirit of God, it has never held that the Spirit put them into a a kind of trance and puppeteered them while they wrote down. Instead, the personalities of the human authors, the cultures, the context, the moods, even the quirks of the human authors are all left intact right there on the page. And this becomes a tremendous complication when one attempts to read the Bible as an entirely literal, entirely linear, one-size-fits-all manual for life in the modern world. Now, this whole left-right paradigm doesn't exactly translate directly into Jesus' context, but there are some interesting parallels. And you can kind of plot those parallels along two distinct religious camps in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, if you're no stranger to the New Testament, you've heard of these guys before. If you're less familiar with the New Testament, don't feel bad. It is new. (laughs) So do me a favor and turn to the right in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. Just one book to the right, Gospel of Mark chapter 12. You're going to flip around here for a minute, but you'll be fine. I actually think I'm going to start this bit where I confront people here in the studio So let's try it. Tyson, do you have your Bible? Are you turning to Mark chapter 12? I I know my man Isaiah got his Bible. Right, Zay? Shoot. And if you guys, (laughs) and if either of you two, Tyson, Isaiah, you're not on your community Zoom call, for shame, you've just been exposed. (laughs) This is like time travel. I'm talking from the past to you in the future. Anyway, Mark 12. We've unpacked this whole Weird conversation we're about to read in detail in our study of Matthew. I just want to zero in on one part of it right now. So let's read Mark 12, beginning with verse 18. It says, Then the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Now the Sadducees, if you recall, don't buy the whole resurrection of the dead thing. They have a very low view of the Old Testament in that they really only care about Mosaic scripture. The book's said to be authored by Moses. So in verse 19, teacher, they say, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. It sounds weird to us, but this law was actually to protect widows in a patriarchal society of the ancient world. But the Sadducees don't care about that. They're using this as a trap. Verse 20, 
So they go on with the story. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. This is the worst time for a widow ever. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Now notice how they're using the Bible as a trick to support their cynicism. They're acting like it's a joke. Isn't your doctrine dumb? And in doing so, they are betraying a certain level of contempt for the Bible. Now, again, we've already unpacked Jesus' answer in detail. If you want his answer, you can go back and listen to the podcast. For now, I want to zero in on his immediate rebuttal in verse 24. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? This is, I think, a parallel for the theological progressives of our day. You are badly mistaken, Jesus is saying, because you do not know the scriptures. And two, because you are oblivious to the power of God. Cynicism and disbelief are your error. And because of it, you are missing the true potential of what God can do in your life through his power and through the writings of the scriptures. Now that's camp one. The other parallel is with the Pharisees. So turn to the right in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Mark, Luke, John, just a little bit to the right. Now these guys, the Pharisees, are essentially your conservative fundamentalists, if you like. They even hail from a more rural and conservative area of the nation, and they love to read and to talk about the Bible. They memorize it. They had their kids memorize it, spent hours in synagogue researching it, studying it, and over time they actually added to it all kinds of supplemental practical regulations. Later they were actually codified in the Mishnah and the Talmud. And it, so, but this stuff didn't come out of thin air. It was their sincere, pragmatic realizing of the scriptures. There's all this content in there. How exactly do we live it out? And they wrote it down. And to these Bible thumpers, Jesus has something interesting to say in John chapter 5. Look down at verse 39. Jesus says to them, You, Pharisees, study the scriptures diligently. Awesome. Because, he says, you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So Jesus is saying, you have a relationship with this book. You do not have a relationship with me. I'm sure that sounds familiar to a lot of you. Skip down to verse 45. Jesus goes on to say, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? You study and know the Bible. Awesome but you have made the Bible God rather than a means to an end, and that end being life with God, knowing God. So the whole polarization over the Bible, the right and the left, the fundamentalists and the liberals, theologically anyway, that's nothing new. And that honestly would be a great stopping point. Um, But I've done that teaching a, a lot of times at this point. That teaching really comes to technique, at the end of the day, how you read the Bible. It's don't be like the left, don't be like the right, embody the very difficult middle. And that's an important conversation. It's why I've done that teaching a lot of times. Obviously, I think so. I keep bringing it up. 
But this series is going to be about more than technique. We need to talk about what's going on in us when we come to the Bible in the first place and the role that our heart posture, as it were, toward the scriptures plays in who we are becoming as disciples of Jesus. This, in other words, is about what the Bible is for. So one more time, turn to the right in your Bible to a letter we call 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're almost done. You can do it, Heather. Stay awake. This is a letter written by Paul to his friend and protege, Timothy. And listen to how Paul describes the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3, let's read beginning in verse 14. Paul writes, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through King Jesus, or through faith in King Jesus. Now that phrase, wise for salvation, combines the idea of intelligence and also goodness. The scriptures, in other words, frankly, make you smarter, and they make you better at living in ways consistent with the saving truth of Jesus. He goes on, verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed. Now, more literally, the idea is that it's breathed out by God himself, and it's useful for four things, Paul says. The first is teaching. The Bible teaches us a new way of life, what Jesus called life to the fullest, in Jesus. It's also useful for rebuking. It exposes current ways of thinking and living that do not lead to life in Jesus. So naturally, the next thing is that it's useful for correcting. When we learn what is and isn't true, we can be brought into alignment with what is good and right. And finally, it's useful for training in righteousness. Now, the Greek word here was used to, des to describe the process of growth in a Greco-Roman child from infancy all the way to adulthood via discipline, learning, experience, structure, wisdom, and formation. The Bible, in other words, is intended for formation. It can train us, nurture us, develop us, and shape us over time. But look at verse 17. So that, meaning all of that is what the Bible is for, but that's not the end. It's a means to an end. The end is, as Paul writes in verse 17, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, the NIV, the translation I'm reading, obscures some of the Greek phrasing here. The ESV has, so that the servant of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But either way, the Greek word here that's translated as complete has to do with an archetype or the best clearest example of a given thing. One lexicon writes something perfectly suited to its nature. So listen to me on this. Paul is arguing that the point of the Bible is not to have all the right information in your head. It's not even necessarily to be encouraged or uplifted before the day begins. The point is that we would be formed into the kinds of people who are wise, mature, and complete representatives of Jesus in the way that we think and talk and live. So you could also put it like this. Why read the Bible? To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus over time, so that you can eventually do the kinds of things that Jesus did if he were us. And here's why that's so pressing. 
to read the Bible for spiritual formation takes more than just technique. Now, a stack of great books and commentaries and hours of the Bible Project podcast and videos, that's, those are all wonderful things. I, I honestly really think so. I spend hours upon hours of my work, most of my work at Van City, with all those things. But even with all that, even with the most disciplined morning Bible routine, even with a graduate degree in Bible and theology, you won't necessarily be formed by the Bible without the right hot heart posture toward the Bible. In his book, Shaped by the Word, Robert Mulholland writes about an important shift that has to happen in the Bible's readers in order that they would experience spiritual formation when they read the Bible. Our reading, he says, has to shift from informational reading to formational reading, which seems simple on paper, catchy even, but it actually grates against the way that we've been trained to ingest and digest what the information age calls content. We approach packets of content for the sweet, sweet information inside. You tear it open, nom, 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 and then you move along solidified in a new thing that you now know or that you now believe. Self-help, politics, journalism, diet, nutrition, media. The idea is you read the book, uh, you watch the YouTube video, or you binge the docu-series, or you skim the article, or you deep dive the conspiracy theory, and now you're all about whatever that thing was. Now you're all about Zen and Buddhism, or now you're all about minimalism, or you're all about the latest fad diet. You're totally convinced that this or that person was a murderer, or that there was a cover-up, or that we should all eat this thing, we should never eat this thing ever again. The idea... It really is that information affords us more control over our lives, and we want control. My wife, Abby, as long as I've known her, has always had this air and this reputation for a quiet wisdom about her. And this week, she made this shrewd observation in response to the latest headline about when we will or won't get out of quarantine. And she looked at the latest in a never-ending succession of purely theoretical dates and said, Man, people love to feel in control. But, and here's something a lot of you won't like at all, so please listen. This is fundamentally the exact opposite of one of the core goals in apprenticeship to Jesus, which is learning to relinquish control. And a Abby, I think, is qualified to make her observation because she is, by her own admission, a person who loves control, who wants control. She likes a plan. She likes efficiency. She wants to be organized. She wants control. To a certain extent, we all do. But Jesus teaches that control is actually an illusion. You don't ever have it. And desperately clawing at that illusion is the thing that keeps us in a recursive loop of anxiety and fear, which is why Jesus' invitation, the beginning of discipleship, not even the most hardcore thing that you level up to at the end, the beginning of discipleship is come and die, and then you can follow me. Deny yourself, bottom out, hand it over, relinquish your control. So Mulholland makes the point that the goal of informational reading is to move fast, find the finish, get the data, and move on. But Formational reading is about reading slowly, beginning to end and then back again, sitting in the text with no finish line in sight, reading designed to happen over a lifetime. 
informational reading moves from point A to point B, goal in mind, but formational reading wanders and it plums the depths and it goes backward and it sits in the mystery. Informational reading is about mastery. It's about you learn it, you absorb it, and then you control the information for your purposes. But formational reading is about allowing the text to master you, which can be very frustrating. To allow it to frustrate you and mystify you at times, to move us into things that we've yet to consider or that we don't like, to allow God via the text to steer us, not the other way around. Now, I'm not arguing that informational reading is bad. I do it almost every single day. I'm not even arguing that an informational reading of the Bible is always bad. I also do this all the time. Time and a place for it. It can be great. My point is that informational reading cannot be our only or our primary way of approaching this book or you will not be formed into the image of Jesus. And that's a tough pill to swallow because most of us, I think, by nature, resist the way the are, that we are meant to approach this text. Mahalan writes, the very thought of being conformed, which clearly implies that we are to be grasped, controlled, and shaped by someone other than ourselves, confronts our deeply ingrained sense of being. Graspers, powerfully resist being grasped by God. Controllers are inherently incapable of yielding control to God. Manipulators strongly reject being shaped by God. Information gatherers are structurally, structurally closed to being addressed by God. We have extreme difficulty in abiding, in waiting patiently, trustingly, preservingly to be shaped by God according to God's agenda. Genuine spiritual formation, being conformed, reverses our role from being the subject who controls the object of the world to being the object of the loving purposes of God who seeks to control us for our wholeness. It reverses our habitual expectations for gratification to a posture of patient, open-ended yieldedness. Genuine spiritual formation brings about a fundamental shift from being our own production to being God's creation. Giving up the illusion of control is really just another way of saying learning to trust Jesus. Few things reveal our attempts at control like the way that we read the Bible. And some of you feel like you need the Bible to be antiquated. You need it to be human. You need it to be a bit flawed because you can't fit your modern worldview into the ancient world of the Bible. And having to figure that out seems scary. What that would ask of you and your worldview seems scary. For others, you need the Bible to be rigid. You need it to be black and white. You need it to be full of helpful rules and ways of understanding who is in and who is out because the mystery of the Bible is scary. Sitting in unanswered questions and what that would require of you and your worldview is scary. And for others of you, maybe this is the biggest population, for others, you need the Bible to just stay over there in your periphery, in, on the margins of your discipleship. It's great and all. You don't actually have any huge problems with it. But isn't Jesus all about love? He loves me whether or not I read the Bible or not. He loves me even if I forget and haven't picked it up in months. Does it really matter? 
because the idea that the Bible is actually crucial to your discipleship and that you will not be formed into the image of, the, of Jesus without the Bible, that is a scary thing. And I know all that sounds intense, but listen, as long as you cling to the illusion of control, you are not free to step into the fullness of who Jesus is inviting you to become. You just can't do both. And I say this as someone who struggles in a profound way with being told what to do. If I am unable to relinquish my own illusions of control over my autonomy, over my freedom, then I cannot come before Jesus and say, you know me better than I know me. Do what needs to be done in my life, whatever that means, even if I don't like it. And all of that factors in not just how we read the Bible, but how we approach the Bible in the first place. So the practice that you are about to begin is a simple one. You are going to have a conversation about your current relationship with the Bible. No judgment, no pretense, just honest, honestly assessing where you're at with the scriptures. And then this week, you're going to start reading the thing. As the practice carries on, we're going to teach you four main methods of reading the Bible, but this week is less about technique and it's more about posture, how you approach the Bible in the first place. To come to the Bible for formation is a gesture of surrender. I realize that pastoral metaphors from parenting are really cliche, but I couldn't help but think this week as I was writing about the dynamic between myself and my kids. I'm bigger than my kids physically at the moment. I tell them what to do. Uh, Abby and I are not perfect parents by any means, but we're doing our best to stay consistent with the discipline and correction and all that, which is never fun. It's always exhausting. It's a pain. But my kids respond to Abby's and my authority along a spectrum of two poles. The one pole is the big bummer. Every parent's familiar with it. It's when our kids insist on spinning their tires in the, in the illusion of their own control that they can't be told what to do and they're not going to listen to us, whatever. Um, so they act out, th throw the tantrum. The, re the result always sucks for them. It never goes well. Punishment, discipline, correction, or because they didn't listen to good advice, they get hurt or they suffer the consequences of their own, quite frankly, foolishness. But on the other hand, there are lots of times on any given day when our kids appeal to the goodness of our authority they come to us knowing that we have more control over the shape of their day than they do and that this is good, not bad. So they use that understanding to ask us for things or they seek us out for direction. What should I do? Or can you help me with this? They use that connectedness to us to get intimacy from us or provision or just to have fun. And we give all of those things out readily. They have no idea... <laughs> how a lot of things work, why things work on a schedule, how a clock works at all, or why we time things the way that we do, why we even enforce some of the rules that we ask them to obey, and they won't understand for a long time. Now, I know as well as anyone that we can't simply throw out all of our flawed perception of the Bible overnight. It'll take Jesus doing a deep work in us over time for that to happen. Now, the idea is never to become soft-minded or unthinking, unsophisticated in our reading of the Bible, just as the idea is to also never become cynical and suspicious in our reading of the Bible. The idea is to come to the text and to Jesus himself, knowing 
that we are not in control and that things are better when he's in charge and he has the say over our lives. So even with a rich library of mystery and questions, beautiful and ugly, simple and profound, we can learn to open these pages and say, I don't get all of it, but I am learning to trust you through the Spirit and through the writings before me. So, to quote Mulholland one more time, if Jesus talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can connect with us or find more teachings and available resources from Van City at www.vancity.church. You can also support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.